Good morning, Bethel. All right, so our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation 19, verses 1 to 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 1039. So that's Revelation 19, verses 1 to 16. That's page 1039 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the, winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may have a seat. Good morning again, Bethel. All right, well, a few... Uh... I want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Um, the passage there in Revelation, as you'll see, is a really important parallel to our text in Isaiah. We've been studying through the book of Isaiah. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying through this big Old Testament book, and we're actually almost done. Um, we just have two more weeks after this one. Uh, so. We're going to look at chapters 63 and 64. I know it's a big section. Um, We're not going to be able to turn over every 
rock, but we'll get the, the uh, gist of these two chapters. It's really, really powerful and important that we do. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 622. So I want you to think with me for a minute here. Um, maybe this is the kind of thing that happens when you're laying in your bed at night and you can't sleep. Maybe it's the kind of stuff that spins through your head while you're driving or in the shower or whatever, but do you ever wonder about the truth of it all? So maybe you're in that spot right now. Maybe you're very familiar with it um, recently or in the past. When you've had those kinds of questions, what kinds of things have typically kicked them up? Has it been in reaction to the evil and suffering in the world around you that you see? Has it ever been as a result of some of the trouble in the church that you've seen or experienced? Maybe a scandal or someone that you trusted that betrayed your trust? Or maybe just it's very personal and it seems like God is silent and he's not answering prayers that you've prayed for a long time. And you wonder if it's just even true. And it, maybe if it is, it's, uh, I don't know. God doesn't seem to be involved in my life. Does he really even care? And those questions, they start to trickle all the way down to the foundations. Does this, this all really even happen? I mean, things just keep droning on, cycling on, all this mess. I mean, maybe the atheists are right all the suffering in human history, all the mess in our present time, all the ugliness that's been perpetrated in the name of Christ, and then all the suffering, the seemingly unanswered prayer or apparent silence in my life. So what do you do with those questions when they arise? What do you do with your deep questions like that? Well, as we are finishing up this series in Isaiah, we're nearing the end of this book, it may be no surprise that the end of the book of Isaiah deals with the end of time and the renewal of all things. But it doesn't just speak to the future out there at the end. It also addresses life, this messy, difficult, doubt, fear, struggle-ridden life here and now, before that final day, <clears throat> in a way that addresses those very deep doubts that we're considering right now. So in light of the end, knowing how to address the doubts and questions is all the more important. So I hope you see that you'll be thankful that these two chapters are in the Bible because they are so helpful to address these kinds of issues. So let's dive in. <clears throat> There's an outline in your bulletin. You'll see the the point's up on the screen as well, but we're first going to see this warrior that comes on the scene. And I want you to think about the book of Isaiah as a whole. If you're not familiar with it, this will give you a little bit of context. If you have been with us um, over the last few months, it will kick some of this context back to mind. You remember the, the book is broken into two pieces, 1 to 39, big pieces, big chunks, and then 40 to 66. 
and there's lots of bad news in the first half, and then things turn, and there's, it's more hopeful in the second half. And in chapter 40, that turning point talks about this voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And that voice was ultimately John the Baptist, okay, in the fulfillment of that prophecy. But in Isaiah 40, it says, Behold your God, behold the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now flip back to chapter 59 and be reminded of some important context here just a couple pages earlier. Look at 59.15. So even though Isaiah is prophesying comfort and God's going to do something and he's going to show up in a powerful way, he also is honest about the circumstances at that time. Verse 15 says, truth is lacking. This sounds very contemporary. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Put a target on your head. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. And then the fear of the name of the Lord will spread to the ends of the earth. And then verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, city of God, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So this anticipation of deliverance is building, redemption for God's people is building, and judgment on the enemies is building. So anticipation, anticipation. Now, chapter 62, look at verse 11. This was last week. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You hear the echoes of those same themes. And then in chapter 62, 6, do you remember watchmen are posted on the walls like Isaiah would be one of them? Looking for this salvation, looking for it to come. And then we get to chapter 63, our passage for this morning, and verse 1 says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So there's this figure who's approaching. Who is it? He's dressed splendidly. Does that mean he's a king? He's marching in great strength. Well, what in the world is Edom and Basra? What does that have to do with anything? Well, Edom was a people that established themselves as enemies of Israel. Okay, And then in the unfolding of the Old Testament, Edom eventually becomes like shorthand for or the epitome of the enemies of God's people. So what that means for verse 1 is that the one who's coming, he's coming from Edom, he's coming from Basra, the capital of Edom, he's just dealt with his enemies, the enemies of his people. And it obviously hasn't tired him in the least. 
He's marching in the greatness of his strength. And then he answers the question of his identity. Who is this? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Okay, but still, questions remain. Verse 1, it says that his, his, he's come, coming in crimson garments. Why are they red? Look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in a wine press? You can imagine what happens if you tread in a wine press and you've got like an ancient Near Eastern robe on. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Revelation 19 is shocking. This is shocking. So this is referring to the final reckoning. And this is the Lord Jesus coming to inflict vengeance on all his enemies. How does that strike you? We need to pause here and squarely face this. We don't get to define reality. The God who made us defines reality. Reality. And you know what? We don't like to ponder the judgment of God, but we need to. And actually, if you ponder this, you begin to realize we don't want a God who doesn't come with judgment. Do you know that everybody in this room wants vengeance at one time or another? Even sweet old women. No, no, I'm, there's nothing derogatory about that being, you know, I'm just saying, you know, you, you think, well, if, if any, no, probably not my aunt, you know, so-and-so or grandma so-and-so. Oh, no. What do you think gossip and slander and judgmental criticism are? Those are mild forms of vengeance. At least they can be. Even more prevalent, and I think we're all guilty here, I know I am, is the vengeance that we meet out that no one ever sees. It happens in here. Have you ever been humiliated or made to look bad by someone? Have you ever been unjustly treated by someone? Have you ever been abused by someone? Has someone you care about ever been unjustly treated or abused? Or it can even happen by means of the threat of abuse or loss or whatever, because the fear of Life-altering effects of this threat can make you want to make them pay because you pay with your fear and anxiety, right? You want to make them pay. So what happens in your head after that happens, <clears throat> sometimes for the next few hours, sometimes for the rest of your life, maybe for years this can be a struggle, what do we end up doing? We write and we produce mental movies. And who gets cast in the leading role? Me. You. You cast yourself in that leading role. And what do you do? 
What you do is you verbally or you physically or even through orchestrating circumstances, you get your revenge. You make them pay. You have the perfect comeback if it was a verbal thing and you looked bad because they humiliated you. You think of just the right thing to say to get them. So what do you do with your wrath, your desire for vengeance? Should we just channel it into those kind of mental movie venues, largely invisible, a little bit more acceptable than actually attacking someone? Sometimes we just let that bitterness and desire for revenge just poison our souls and corrode them from the inside out. So if this is just something we all experience, where's the power to let it go? Well, first off, it doesn't come from calling evil good. Okay, evil is evil. We should hate what is evil. Rape, molestation, what Hitler did, abusive husbands, abusive parents, racism, lynch mobs, sex trafficking, pimps and madams who enslave and use and abuse, drug dealers who prey on and deceptively lure in young new customers, and on and on and on in our broken world. Justice is coming. Don't you long for it? This is deeply imprinted on our souls. I mean, it's why we love these movies that if the bad guy is developed, the character is developed well, you can't wait for him to get his just desserts. And there's a satisfaction that comes when he gets what's coming to him. I know it gets twisted, and oftentimes we get it wrong. You know, the Avengers... The Count of Monte Cristo went over the top, okay? But should we want justice for bin Laden? I think we all experience that. How about, how about shooters who kill multiple people and then turn the gun on themselves? Where's the justice in that? So vengeance can be just. It doesn't have to refer to this out-of-control, out-of-proportion, spiteful attack to settle grievances. With God, vengeance is not petty. It's not unhinged personal vindictiveness. It is just reprisal for wrongs done. It is principled opposition to evil and final justice. And without it, there is no cosmic justice. Hitler can do what he wants, and if he committed suicide, who knows what happened? It's not just. How could that ever be paid for if he just whoop, goes out of existence? Or those that kill tens or hundreds and then turn the gun on themselves. Or rape. How can years in prison right that wrong? But listen, in God's universe, no one's getting away with anything. Barry Webb said this, God has put the world on notice that he will not tolerate insurrection forever. <clears throat> so we don't want a God who's okay with evil, who's hands off. You want a God who is principally and vehemently even opposed to evil. A God who will one day rid this world of all evil. 
And that's what this passage is all about. So we've all wanted vengeance. Some, most of our desires like that have been ugly, wrong, and twisted, but some of it is a result of our desire for justice, the law of God imprinted on our souls, and even the fact that we are beings of dignity made in the image of God. So it is wrong to defraud or slight or humiliate another image bearer, to curse or abuse them. So this vengeance, even if it's when it's right, it's not ours to meet out. We can't dispense it. It's God's to meet out. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. You know all those words of, I did it alone. <laughs> I don't need your help in this. So even those mental movies, you know what we need to do? Cut and trust Jesus. In that moment, fighter verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Let him be the one to pave the way. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, right? And you know what the amazing thing is? The, the kind of at first, it seems counterintuitive, but then it starts to click. This is what frees us to love our enemies. Do you know that the coming wrath is what frees us to love our enemies? It's precisely because God will right all wrongs that we don't have to try to avenge ourselves. The wrath and vengeance of God actually frees us to forgive and love our enemies. Trusting that vengeance to God, he will do right, I will abuse it, I will mess it up, it's not my right, it frees us from the need to try and take it. So this is a very sobering passage, <clears throat> but it's also very good news. Evil will not last forever. Evil will not get the last word in this universe. God is going to bring perfect peace and human flourishing to the entire world. And that means the eradication of all evil. Flip back to Isaiah 35 and this vision of <clears throat> the future when everything is set right. Again, we hear echoes of these same themes earlier on. Isaiah 35, 3. You can just listen if you're not there. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Not in your own strength, but in God who's got things under control and he'll set everything right. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Imagine Christians under the threat of ISIS hearing this. Verse 8, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, all evil eradicated. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, no threats, nor shall, there, <clears throat> nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. <clears throat> and because all of the evil is eradicated, 
<clears throat> Verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, the city of God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Don't you long for that? We long for that, but here's the sobering truth. If God, in one fell swoop, eradicates all evil, we're all toast. It's easy to accept the fact that rapists and child molesters and pimps and Hitler get this vengeance meted out to them. But all evil deserves the just wrath of God, including atheists who shake their fist and they're so angry at the God in whom they do not believe. And self-righteous Pharisees that grew up in the church and have little good attendance stars on their chest, and they don't think they need a savior because they're better than the next person. And they spit in the face of the one who bled and died for sinners. And for how many whose God is their stomach in the wealthy West, how dangerous is this? They prefer and love sex and food and drink and comfort over knowing God. He, he's just not worth their time. Jeremiah 2.11, has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. These other false gods don't benefit you. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. For my people have committed two evils. Evils. Biblical definition of evil. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We're all guilty. Running to other sources of satisfaction and just telling God to shove off. Who's not guilty of that? Which is why this anointed one who comes in Isaiah 63, yes, he first came to bear the guilt for our evil. So this mighty warrior, lion-hearted and, and unstoppable, mighty to save in Isaiah 63, is the same anointed one in Isaiah 53. Mighty to save by voluntarily embracing weakness and death in our place for our evil, for our sin, on the cross like a lamb slain to atone for our sin. So, Here's the cool thing. His apparel is red with his own blood before it's red with the blood of his enemies. He chose out of mercy and love for his garments to be bloodied with his own blood before they're bloodied with the blood of his enemies who refuse his mercy. So the Lion of Judah is the Lamb that was slain. Behold the Lamb, accept that sacrifice in your place, trust in Him. Otherwise, you will face Him as an unstoppable lion against you, like this in Isaiah 63. So listen, all human evil, nobody's getting away with anything, every ounce of it. 
has either been dealt with on the cross or will be dealt with by the judgment of King Jesus at the end. So, you don't have to add to it for anyone else, even your enemies, because his judgment will be enough. And we don't have to beat ourselves up or try to, you know, do all kinds of good things to get into God's favor because just like this is his work to do alone, we don't have to add to it. This was his work to do alone, and we don't have to add anything to it. We need to trust him. So the Lord Jesus is a warrior. He has fought for us. But for those who continue to rebel and resist, he will one day come to throw down all his enemies. So whose side, which side are you on? If the cross is rejected, then there is nothing left but terrible and just judgment, whether we like it or not. And I would have blood on my hands if I failed to warn you of the blood that will one day be on Jesus' garments. C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell or this divine vengeance is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He already has at Calvary. So if you reject that, there's nothing left. There's no hope. So the vengeance of God is bad news to stubborn rebels, good news to repentant rebels, and good news to suffering saints. So the lamb was slain for our evil. And the lion will one day come and rid the world of all evil. In between, life gets messy. The church at times and in places can be like a wasteland. Our lives can feel the same way. We wonder if God's given up on us. Isaiah knew that angst. And his intercession here, basically the rest of this passage, is him interceding for God's people. He's just brokenhearted at how much of a mess it is. So this is such a model for us. In between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, to know how to pray and wrestle with the Lord over the mess in our own lives and in the world around us. So we can learn to pray here, and that's what we're going to look at um, the rest of our time here. So the rest of chapter 63 and 64 is this beautiful, incredibly helpful model of how we live as God's people through the valleys of messiness in this broken world. Remember last week, Isaiah 62, 1, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Verse 6, all the day, all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. In light of the mess between his first coming and second coming, we ask, we seek, we knock, we don't give up because we know God's at work, he's in control, and he's bringing everything to the point where finally and fully he will make all things new. So, Point number two, restless intercessor, Isaiah. Look at how he wrestles with God. 
He begins by recounting steadfast love and rebellion. Look at verses 7 to 11. He begins with the character of God. It's always a good place to start for all prayer and wrestling with God. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. Early on, salvation history, he grabbed a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for himself. Surely there are my people, children who will not deal falsely. He became their savior. But they ended up in Egypt, right? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Look at that for the heart of God. In their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But, and if you know the Old Testament, rebellion over and over and over again. But they rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. He had to judge them eventually, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. He just, he just can't go too long without having mercy. He remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Remember back in Exodus, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and he delivered them. So here's what's going on. By recounting God's dealings with us in the past, Isaiah is certainly affirming our sin and our proneness to wander. It's real, just like the situation he was living in at the moment. You know, our compass naturally is broken. It's pointed to rebellion. But he also affirms that God has been incredibly merciful in the past. When things got really messy, he was able to save and redeem in the past. He's done this before. So in light of that present mess, the same God who redeemed back then could do something now. Do you see? So the remembering and recounting what he did before is, okay, where are you? You see how he goes on? Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right, of Mo- right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they didn't stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Do it again. Have mercy on us. Look down from heaven, verse 15, and see from your beautiful and holy habitation where are your zeal and your might. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from us, from me. So do you see Isaiah? He's got these desperate questions. We're not alone in desperation. Isaiah is saying, why Why do you make us wander from your ways? Verse 17. Why do you harden our hearts so that we don't fear you? Look at at 64.5. Skip down a little ways. In our sins, we've been a long time, and how, how shall we be saved? Or the last verse of these two chapters, verse 12 of 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? He's basically saying, do something! We are utterly hopeless without you. Why are you hanging back? Why don't you act? Why don't you do something? Don't you see? Don't you know? Do you resonate with any of that? 
Is that in any way encouraging? I think it ought to be encouraging. Like God wanted this to be in here, <laughs> to encourage us to not lose heart and to keep asking and seeking and knocking. And you know, we can take all of our desperation and all of our doubts and all of our questions to God. He's got infinitely broad shoulders. He can handle your toughest questions and your deepest questions and doubts. Cast your cares on Him. He cares for you. So this is normal in a broken, fallen world where the kingdom is coming, but where there's still so much brokenness and evil. So desperation is actually going to be normal for us. Look at the, the way Isaiah pleads desperately, P-L-E-A-S. <laughs> Look at these pleas for, for God to act. 63.15, look down from heaven and see. 63.17, return for the sake of your servant. 64.1, oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Do you ever have oh in your prayers? 64.9, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. It's a mess down here. This is normal in a fallen, broken world. This is the cry of faith to take those questions to God rather than let them cause you to distance yourself from God. Because this life between Jesus' first coming and second coming is going to be filled with the pattern of desperation and deliverance. I heard somebody say that years ago, and it stuck with me ever since because it resonated. Desperation and deliverance. We should expect it's going to be normal to wrestle with the Lord, to experience desperation. Look at the descriptions of how bad things are. 63.19, we've become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. 64.6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's pretty explicit. It's a menstrual cloth. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 64.7, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So we will have trouble in this life. We will be desperate. Maturity, Christian maturity does not look like this, you know, stoic thing where you live, you know, above the fray, always never bothered or afflicted. You just kind of placidly float through life. No, we're going to have desperation. And in our desperation, we will pray and we will wrestle and we will wrestle until he blesses us. Because Isaiah 64, 4 is true, and we're going to hang on to it. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He works for those who wait for him. Even, even the people of verse 5 who've been in their sins for a long time, those who are unclean, whose righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are desperate, but God specializes in desperate cases. So Isaiah is wrestling, but in remembering God's character, recounting his track record, he's saying, do it again. I know you can. And I'm willing to pray and wait because I know your character. You work for those who wait for you. 
Verse 8, 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Earlier on in Isaiah, the potter clay thing was used to talk about their rebellion because they were like little, you know, pots going, why'd you make me like this? Now they're humbled saying, you're the potter. We're the clay. Please do your work, even if it's painful. And Isaiah is not going to shut up until God answers. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Um, so we should be encouraged that a fellow believer, Isaiah himself, wrestled with the same questions and angst that we do. And you know what? The answers to most of his prayers were hundreds of years off. But Jesus did come in the fullness of time. And so for us, it can seem like he doesn't hear, he doesn't care, but oh no, he has come. And he is at work, he's coming. And he will return and rend the heavens and set the world to rights so we can wait for the Lord because he works for those who wait for him. So those questions, those doubts, where are you taking them? What are you doing with them? Are you waiting on the Lord? Do you expect that to be normal in the Christian life? Otherwise, you might think, like, what's wrong with me? I must not be a real Christian because I'm struggling so much. No, this is normal. How long, O oh Lord, is going to be our experience? When we wait and struggle, it doesn't mean it's all not true or that he's forgotten about us or that he's given up on us. Our prayers will not go unanswered. Isaiah's prayers were answered. Cyrus came along, immediate answer. The people in exile got brought back home to Jerusalem. Ultimately, Jesus did come, the lamb slain. He did rend the heavens, didn't he, and come down? <laughs> the incarnation. He didn't just look down, he came down. And his garment was soaked in his own blood before it will be soaked in the blood of his enemies. He fought for us so that he could be for us. And he will only fight against those who refuse him. If God is for us, who can be against us? So for us, our prayers will be answered. They already have begun to be answered. I mean, if you're here and you're trusting in Jesus, the lamb slain, <laughs> that's the best gift that you could ever have. He's the answer to all of our prayers. And we're going to experience these countless cycles of desperation and deliverance. And the reason we will experience the deliverance is blood bought, all because of Jesus. So we can keep waiting on him and keep crying out, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. From of old, no eye, no one has heard nor perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Amen. And then listen to this. For us, for the whole company of the redeemed, our prayers will one day all be answered. There is coming a day when your kingdom come will be prayed for the last time. The day is coming when we will no longer cry out, how long, O Lord? The day is coming when our desperate cry, even so come, Lord Jesus, is going to be answered. 
So I want to close by reading a poem. I've read a portion of it a while ago, but it bears repeating, and then we're going to sing a song to close. So even if the musicians want to come on up, this poem is called Justified Forevermore. It's by John Piper. I'll read most of it. As far as any eye could see, there was no green, but every tree was cinder black and all the ground was gray with ash. The only sound was arid wind like spirits' ghosts, gasping for some living hosts in which to dwell, as in the days of evil men, before the blaze of unimaginable fire had made the earth a flaming pyre for God's omnipotent display of holy rage." The dreadful day of God had come. The moon had turned to blood. The sun no longer burned above, but blazing with desire had flowed into a lake of fire. The seas and oceans were no more, and in their place a desert floor fell deep to meet the brazen skies and silence conquered distant cries. The Lord stood still above the air. His mighty arms were moist and bare. They hung as weary by his side until the human blood had dried upon the sword in his right hand. He stared across the blackened land that he had made and where he died. His lips were tight, and deep inside, the mystery of sovereign will gave leave, and it began to spill in tears upon his bloody sword for one last time. And then the Lord wiped every tear away and turned to see his bride, her heart had yearned 4,000 years for this. His face shone like the sun, and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss, she heard the master say, Watch this. Come forth, all goodness from the ground. Come forth and let the earth redound with joy. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne, a stream began to flow and laugh. And as it ran, it made a river and a lake. And everywhere it flowed, a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And to every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O oh God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days and let us see the joy of what is yet to be. And may your future make us free and guard us by the hope that we through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. Who is this who comes? Who came? Who is coming soon? It is King Jesus, mighty to save.